Hello, I'm Gotti Kaufman, and I'm uh, glad to have you join us for the Best Minds in Real Estate interview session with uh, Casey Berman of uh, Canberra Creek. The Best Mind Real Estate Sessions program is designed to allow our friends, colleagues, clients uh, to uh, share their wisdom, their thoughts, their experiences with uh, our uh, audience. And uh, this is a live taping session, which is allowing for Q&A in a webinar format, but will also be posted shortly on YouTube at the RCLCO channel on YouTube. So we hope you enjoy the session and we welcome you to the session. So um, before we get started real quickly, uh, with us is uh, Josh Boren. Uh, Josh is uh, the Director of uh, Business Development for RCLCO and a good friend. And Josh is going to act as moderator for the Q&A session. So we invite all participants to uh, post their session, the questions uh, on the chat uh, or on the uh, questions link, Q&A link. And Josh will sort through those questions and organize them so that he can interject uh, as we go along. And uh, aside from that, I think we're good to go. Josh, you good to go? You are, good. Thank you for the thumbs up. Uh, Casey Berman is uh, Managing Director and General Partner of Camber Creek. Uh, Camber Creek is a prop tech company. We'll learn more about uh, Camber Creek and Casey as we go along. Uh, just two words on your background, Casey. Uh, you joined Camber Creek, uh, prior to uh, starting Camber Creek, you were President of, uh, in, uh, of Operations for one of the DC area's uh, most prolific and prominent uh, real estate companies in the development and management of uh, various types of uh, property types. And uh, uh, you founded Canberra Creek about eight years ago, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, you, you today run the entire company as the CEO. Uh, you lead the due diligence uh, process for potential investments. So you make the investment decisions along with your investment committee. And uh, of course you participate in the oversight of the entire portfolio. So, um, you also serve on a number of boards of some of your portfolio companies. And uh, very important to mention, you're a graduate of the University of Michigan and a proud alumni. So welcome on board, Casey. Good to have you today. Thanks for uh, having me today, Gotti. This is great. Yeah. Super. So uh, I probably did a fair amount of disservice in my quick summary of your background. So maybe I should allow you to uh, provide us a little bit more about your background and how did you come by the idea of Canberra Creek uh, over the years? Sure, thanks. So I started in the real estate space, really working in the trades all the way down into uh, pouring concrete, working in high voltage, low voltage, elect electricity, electrician type work, and worked my way through property management and ultimately taking over as president of a property management company running a portfolio of office buildings, retail centers, and apartments. And that was everything from high-rise apartments to low-rise uh, neighborhood retail, grocery anchored retail, lifestyle centers, full service, and various types of office. And every workflow that we had, uh, barring one, was an old-fashioned workflow, specifically, uh, we used Excel spreadsheets and a cell phone to accomplish all of our goals. If there was a tenant request, that would go on one Excel spreadsheet. The property management team would then handle it with the building engineers. If there was a, a new tenant or a new lease, all of the prospects were tracked on a different Excel spreadsheet. The only workflow that was really uh, util that utilized software was accounting. And Back in 2008, nine, and 10, we were really looking to streamline our business by introducing technology. And that's where the idea for Camber Creek was born. The original thesis was let's make our core real estate business more efficient. And when we looked to bring on technology, what we found were startups. There were very few mature technology companies in North America that were solving these workflow problems that we were running into. And when we spoke to our peers and colleagues in the industry, everyone said something similar. It was Excel spreadsheets, cell phones. Every now and then we got a joke about a fax machine. Um, and the key was we saw this opportunity to one, pilot software and technology related to real estate. 
And then number two, if we made an investment in that company, we had this massive built-in network of real estate owners and operators that we could help introduce the company to. So we launched Camber Creek back in 2011 with that exact thesis. And that is number one, try out every single company before we put any money at risk. And that's a key to our whole model. And then the second piece is once we invest, we then can roll it out to a massive network of owners and operators, dramatically increasing the size of the, the startup uh, that we had just invested in. So you, be, you, you were a user come investor come right. operator of, of technology platforms. Basically, that's kind of the evolution and uh, uh, ingenious. What, um, have you found the limits of what it is that you need as a user? Uh, and, and is that part of the reason why you transitioned from your real estate company to Cambridge Creek uh, so that you can invest and deploy more technology, more uh, use uh, uh, processes than what your company needed? Right, so that's a great question. The opportunity we realized was just significantly larger than we could have ever imagined. Um, our real estate business focused on the three major assets, office, retail, and multifamily. And what we found was every single thing that real estate touched was old fashioned. And that's when we recognized just how massive this opportunity was. So uh, we followed uh, the pretty traditional venture capital structure. We, so we launched our first fund in 2011. We launched our second fund in 2017 after we actually proved the model. So in 2011, we launched the first fund. We made 13 investments, proved the model, returned profit, returned all the principal. And then with that second fund, we set out to really capitalize on the full opportunity. To your point, we brought in investors across every asset class. So beyond just the core groups that uh, I was running, and at that stage, I also made the transition and started running Camber Creek full-time. Uh, so the key became we brought in investors for that second fund in hospitality, general contracting, home building, commercial, residential lending, every piece of the real estate puzzle, such that we could now try every single piece of software that touched anywhere in the real estate universe with one of our investors. So we then had a built-in uh, network of individuals and corporations that had skin in the game. And then once we made an investment, we then leveraged that much larger network of groups that had skin in the game. And that's where we really started to see our model flourish was this concept of all different types of real estate owners and operators across asset classes working together to both pilot the leading solutions in our space, and then taking it a step further, implementing after we made an investment. So, and we really hit our sweet spot with that second fund. So I want to talk more about the second fund in a moment, but I'm curious, uh, did you also spread beyond operational enabling technologies into other kinds of technology or still focused on making real estate operations be better? So there's, the, sh the short answer is we expanded. Real estate operations still has an amazing amount of opportunity. And we still actually invest in companies in that space today. The way we bucket the categories today, we have two buckets. The first is business model innovation. And then the second is just pure software. And the way we think about it is with pure software, in a lot of cases, that's the workflow automation. So reporting or lease workflow tools, property management workflow tools, those are primarily just a software package where your team implements the software, it makes your team and all of the stakeholders more efficient. With the business model innovation, what we have found is there's massive opportunities to take traditionally uh, cumbersome and paper heavy workflows and build a company on them. For example, the appraisal business. The appraisal business has not changed in decades. And 
there's a massive opportunity to make them more efficient. Why does it take three weeks to do an appraisal when 98 out of the 100 pages all look the same? Um, or for example, remodeling. With remodeling, you know, why does a contractor have to go to a site four or five times prior to ever starting work? You know, there's an enormous amount of inefficiency in traditional business and technology can play an enormous role in, in closing that gap and making things more efficient. Very interesting. Uh, what changed since you started? At the beginning, you were looking for solutions for your company and found uh, precious few, and the few that you found were startups, not proven, et cetera. Uh, if, if you were Casey Berman, fast forward you know, 12 or 15 years, how is the world different today from a user perspective? Yeah, one of the most exciting pieces of what we've done is the user has a new expectation. Back in 2009, 10, and 11, it's really hard to imagine at this point, but the iPad wasn't common. It doesn't exist. I mean, it's, it's hard to even say that. Like, what would, right. what would it be like without an iPad? People did not have the expectation that they could do anything and everything wherever they were whether it be ordering food on their phone to wherever they are in the world, um, having a Zoom conference, video conference call from anywhere at any time. Right. I mean, it's hard to even remember back then, but BlackBerry was the most common phone. Uh, right. And to see today, the, the consumer has just so much more control over so many more things, where they want it, when they want it. And the way that is impacting real estate is people are going so far as in, in this current moment in time and saying, my cell phone should be the only thing that I need to touch in a day. And that's possible. You know, even two, three, four years ago, that would have been unimaginable. Right. Um, so whether it's getting into your office building, your apartment building, ordering food, your phone might be the only thing. You might not have to touch a single common area uh, surface. And in this current moment in time, that it's really indicative, it really illustrates how much has changed. So my question kind of was hoping to, I was hoping you to talk about how uh, a user, and I didn't mean real, I mean, I didn't mean a consumer user, I meant business user, sure. uh, who is now saying, you know, maybe I'm running things antiquated, maybe I've even adapted uh, sort of older technologies and older software packages, but Today, when they come to the world the way you did, uh, when you joined the company and looked at operations and said, you know, we can do this better, faster, cheaper, uh, how is the world different for that kind of a potential user? Looking for Right, more. so to, today, there is a technology solution for most workflows. 10 years ago, that, that was not the case. Um, there was accounting. And today you can look at almost any piece of real estate tech mm -hmm. and any workflow, and there will be a solution. Uh, the exciting thing that we see in this current moment is even today, 10 years later from when we founded Camber Creek, the solutions that exist are very far from elegant. And what I mean by that is you might need two, three, four different technology solutions. Right to execute on, for example, for example, a real estate closing. You probably need four or five different or six different technology softwares to do that. And where we view this next phase of innovation is in the streamlining of the technology. The integration. The integration. It's been a lot of point solutions to date, which is a massive step. I mean, that creates an amazing amount of efficiency where businesses really drive an amazing amount of margin and enterprise value is gonna be created is with that integration, with a lot of different disparate point solutions working seamlessly together. That makes That's, a lot of sense. I, I totally get that. Uh, from our clients, what we hear is that uh, they find technology, A, intimidating, right? Uh, and B, confusing. And lastly, even if once they get through those two barriers and they say, fine, it's intimidating and confusing, but I'm going to do it, uh, then uh, it, it, it is a very murky 
um, marketplace, finding the right solution for the problem that I have uh, is not easy to do. And it appears like the uh, intermediaries between the technology solution and the technology user are not a, a well-developed marketplace. Is that true? Do you see that changing if it's true? If not, what is what am I missing in my description of the market? Yeah, so it's definitely true. What we find is there's first off just a ton of noise. There, for example, in multifamily, there's 15, 20 different solutions for a chat bots. You know, if a, if a potential uh, resident wants to talk to a property management company and they have some sort of chat bot functionality on their website or on one of their partner's websites, you know, there's 20 different options of which chatbot you can use. So there's just a lot of noise across the industry. So to your point, the first step is you need either a trusted resource or a group to filter the noise. The second piece is what we found is a lot of technology companies are just that they're technology companies. They don't know the vernacular of real estate. They don't speak the, the leasing language, so to speak of the, multifamily leasing agents, which is different than an office leasing agent, which is different than a single family home rental uh, group. So the nuances and vernacular in the real estate space are challenging, especially when you're, you have a technology founding team. When I say that, there's, there's been a lot of very large both publicity and valuations in the real estate technology space over the past three or four years, which has attracted an amazing amount of technology talent from the large uh, tech firms, Google, Facebook, Amazon, where they know technology and they know they can use things they've learned with e-commerce, transactions, advertising to streamline real estate. However, making the jump and with the technology, with the real estate, focus is more than just building out a great solution. So you're absolutely correct. What we have found is the first phase of a startup is proving that the model works. And the second phase is really communicating with the customer. And that is often significantly more challenging to your point, Gadi, right. than the actual building of the technology. And we've seen a lot of companies over the past nine years that struggled mostly with that second piece. They've built a great solution. It is more efficient for the property manager. However, the property manager has been doing their job the same way for the past 20 years. And why should they switch? Uh, it's hard for them to understand the, how the technology is going to make their life easier. And that's where we can play a critical role because we speak the language of the real estate professional and the technology professional, we can help bridge that communication barrier and be that resource to firms. So th th this is interesting because we, you sort of, we're sort of blocking out uh, the, the user and the pr provider and the communications gap between the two of them, which is at least with some part based upon a language barrier. Right, we talk this language, you talk that language, and you don't really communicate. So I can understand how Canberra Creek can, can play a very important role in helping the provider, the, the, the technology company, learn more or learn how to speak better uh, real estate speak and, uh, and understand real estate needs. For um, how, 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 how much of a role does that play in your selecting companies that you're going to invest with or invest in. Yeah, that's one of the most important pieces. And it's harder to flesh out than just meeting with the founding team. And specifically one of the core pieces, as I mentioned at the beginning, we run what's called a beta lab. And when we work with a potential company, what we'll do is we will work with the company, do our preliminary diligence, and if they pass that first two steps, we then will introduce them to our beta lab. And what that means is we start working with the founding team and with either two to 10 of our LPs, of our investors, to try out the software. 
And that's one of the most telling pieces of our diligence. When we hear the feedback from the head of marketing, or if it's uh, you know property management solution from the building engineers and property managers, and we hear from them, wow, you're saving us tons of time. I'd be willing to pay X for this. How much does it cost? That's, you know, in that one sentence, we've gleaned a ton of information. When we hear from uh, an LP, and this was a real example, we introduced the company to four of our LPs in the multifamily space across asset classes. I mean, across uh, categories, class A through C. Class C had no interest. They said, this is not the right product for us. It is going to change the reputation, not for the better, of our asset. And that was a surprise first to us in that it changed what the company had conveyed was the size of their market. The company said, our market is all multifamily assets. Well, pretty quickly we learned that class C assets are not gonna be part of their market. Um, And then what we found with the class A and the class B is they love the product. It was an amazing hit. They felt it like it was a win-win. Not only that, the integration was seamless. And in order to know how well an integration is going to go, you have to try to do an integration. And you do all that before you even invested in the, in the company? Yeah. So we, with that specific company I'm referring to, we introduced them to 2,000 apartment units during our due diligence process. We tracked them through the life cycle with those potential customers. It went incredibly well. And we ultimately, with that specific one, invested in that company. Yeah. The key with that is, During our due diligence, we could analyze how fast and how well they could onboard those 2,000 pilot units. And then after our investment, we could then make a pretty close estimate to how many of our uh, 500,000 plus apartment units in our LP network we could actually deploy into. So for us, we test out what we think is going to happen after we make the investment. And we can really build an investment case and have serious conviction when we try that. Yeah. If, if I was a startup that has an idea for real estate and I wanted to approach you, Canberra Creek, for funding. I'm uh, not going to sign an NDA, Gotti. <laughs> I don't have an idea. And I don't <laughs> a startup, so no need for an NDA. But I am interested in uh, how, how would you advise uh, or what, what would be the criteria that I would have to kind of meet in order to qualify to be potentially a candidate for investment? Yeah, so the the big one for us, our biggest hurdle, is the company needs to be ready for the major leagues. That's how we qualify it. And what we mean by that is we would need to be able to introduce the company to our LP network and be able to drive all of that value. We cannot say the company is almost product market ready. We're going to wait six months. After we invest, we'll wait six months, and then we'll be able to introduce them to our LP network. The moment we put our money at risk, we need to be going full speed adding value. So you so invest our, in companies that have completed the development, are ready right. to roll out, and you help them go to the next level, which is roll out and perfect the product uh, once in operations. Yeah, I mean, and I would add some more to that. We, they need to have customers. Right? We need to speak to existing customers. Mm. Generally speaking, the way we think about it is a company will have between 250000 and $10 million of revenue. That's our sweet spot. And by having in that range, you have data points, you have customer feedback, you have product market fit, you have data around growth rates, you know, how fast per month or month over month are they growing? And based on the amount of introductions, based on the amount of value we can drive, can we increase that? Can we decrease that? What is our expectation over the next 18 months? So an idea is too soon, um, but, we, we are still willing to go in pretty early so long as they have that uh, baseline of operation. Okay, that's very helpful to understand the, those parameters. So tell us about some of the companies in which you invested uh, recently. Let's talk about some of the more recent success, uh, investment period. Sure. Um, one that uh, just came out in the news this morning, uh, that's uh, timely for this call, we led a Series C investment in a company called Notarize. And as you can imagine right now with COVID-19, a lot of what was historically done face-to-face, real estate closings, um, 
any transaction, the signing of trust and estate uh, documents, car title transfers, anything that needs a notarization was historically done face-to-face. -face. And uh, in the past, since March, you couldn't do that. That was, for the most part, not an option. And what Notarize has done over the past uh, number of years is built out a platform to do notarizations at scale across the country. Wow. And digitally, fully online. As of uh, the end of March, 49 out of 50 states approved digital notarization. A number of those uh, prior to March, it was around, it was in the 20s. So a number of them signed emergency legislation to enable digital notarizations. A number of those have since made it permanent. The one holdout is Iowa. Um, we'll see how long Iowa holds out for. And uh, the key around Notarize is they've now had the barrier, the traditional inertia removed. You know, everyone was moving towards digital closings with DocuSign and Adobe's, you know, signature uh, tools now more common and the real estate space getting more comfortable with digital closings. That was the direction we were going. In the past four months, Notarize has grown over 400%. And the key is this, this current climate brought down the resistance, brought down that hesitation to trying something new. Sort of it's our expectation that this will be the new normal. Once right. people are comfortable doing a digital notarization, there's no need for them to drive to you know, the FedEx Kinko store to figure out if they can get a document notarized. Is that a defendable space? In other words, can you have uh, a virtual monopoly in it or will other entrants come in and compete? Yeah, so there's, there's two really major defensible pieces. The first is the enterprise agreements. I mean, there's, there's organizations that do just a massive amount of notarization. For example, with uh, standard residential closings, there's between five and seven notarizations per closing. Right. Um, so the title agencies, the underwriters, the lenders, you know, they integrating, this goes back to where we started, integrating with the closing software that exists is very defensible. On the consumer side, uh, it's more about the brand. And they have an amazing brand. I mean, their, their company is called Notarize. It's a great name. <laughs> it's a great name for what they do. Correct. Uh, no confusion, so, right? Yeah. It's like that, that alone is, has a ton of value. So, uh, you know, between both the enterprise defensibility with integrations and their branding, they're in the leadership role uh, or leadership position in the whole country. Yeah. Another example, any other investments? Yeah. So um, right now we've been seeing a lot of uh, news and you, there's, there's been a significant amount of interest in iBuying, which is you know, companies like Zillow, Open Door uh, that right. buy really on demand, you know, they offer you a price and you can close very quickly on selling your house. And what we found was there was very little uh, value being created other than closing fast. And, and so we started, what's that? And for cash. And for cash, closing fast for cash. There is value in that, uh, but that was the extent of the value being unlocked. And what we, we had a proactive thesis around remodeling. We felt like there was this massive opportunity to disrupt the traditional remodeling space. And when we did diligence into that space, what we found was most traditional remodelers had a margin between nine and 14%. They spent a lot of time driving back and forth to the site. They, every project was a different bidding process. And every time they had to procure materials, they had to find it in a different way. And what we found was when we did diligence, there was a number of companies that were tech enabling the remodel space. And the margins what we found were between 18 and 22%. So a significant increase. 
However, we felt like there was, there was more and there was a larger opportunity to streamline it. And this goes into our bucket of a business model innovation. So we identified a company called Curbio, and this is also one of our newer investments. With Curbio, what they have done is created a tech stack. So they've created this software that can take the data from a 3D scanning company. So a Matterport or similar type product will scan a single family home. And with that scan, 3D scan of the single family home, they can scope the project, they can do a design of the project, they can do a full contract and provide it to the homeowner saying, if you wanna update your house before you sell it, it'll cost this much and this is what it'll look like. They then take it a step further and say, we'll finance the whole thing and be paid back at closing. And they can then use that same offer scope and design fully bid out the project on their software. So they have a, sub, a reverse auction subcontractor bidding platform to minimize the labor price, and they can order at the corporate level via their software. Wow. So this, this entire platform was built such that on day one, when they show up for the first time in person, they start demo. And the key with Curbio is they're unlocking a ton of value for the homeowner. So the standard deal for Curbio would be a $400,000 house. The project uh, or the broker would say to the homeowner, if you spend probably around forty dollars to $50,000 updating your house, we could probably sell it for $520,000, like your neighbor who sold it for $520,000. Theirs was move-in ready, updated. And the homeowner says, great, I don't know how to do that and I don't have any money to do that. And the broker says, sure, you should use Curbio. They'll finance it and do all the work. So they sign on the dotted line. Curbio, this average deal is about a $47,000 remodel, one kitchen, maybe three bathrooms. They come in, do the whole project in two months and unlock the additional $120,000 worth of value. The homeowner makes an additional uh, $70,000, Curbio goes home with their $47,000, and the broker makes a larger commission. Everyone's happy. Um, that it's amazing that the whole thing is done sight unseen. You just take a picture of the kitchen and they uh, scan it in and kind of automatic, but there's no architect involved, no designer involved, no, no, no so human. With, with the 3D scanning uh, data, they can do a takeoff with the Matterport data that this, they, they 3D scan the property, they can do the takeoff and do the full design um, build what an architect would do. And the Matterport data, a lot of, home, or a lot of uh, brokers are doing that as a standard process anyway. So it's not like it's a, a new, oh, really? uh, a new uh, contractor that has to come into the site. It's the essence of innovation, right? You take an existing technology, put it to work in a better uh, use. Uh, so, so what's the revenue story for the company since you invested, uh, before yeah. you invested, and since you invested, what happened? Um, so in 2018, the, the company had around three and a half million of revenue. Uh, they have grown significantly in 2019. They did over 12 million in revenue. Uh, that's 3x type of growth we like to see. In, uh, the in the first five months, uh, they are still on track at that growth rate. And the key piece of data here is since uh, March, listings are down about 60%. Right. It ranges by local market. However, uh, with listings down significantly, that's the front of their deal pipeline. And what they've been able to do is continue to expand year over year and expand in the markets that they are. So prior to COVID, the company had a plan to expand into uh, more markets around the country. Since COVID hit, the biggest change is they've just, they've reduced the number of new markets they're launching. They're being more conservative on the new market launches and really maximizing the existing markets that they're already in. 
I didn't realize uh, from your story, I just assumed that it was an a, a location agnostic uh, uh, setup that can do it anywhere. But I think the answer is no, it's location specific. Yeah, so they, they do need a general contractor. Their employee is the project manager, is the general contractor of record. Uh, I so they, the key piece for quality control, and this we actually prefer this, is they have the project manager, the GC of record for these projects. And unlike any of the other groups in the space that are doing tech-enabled remodeling, they're doing the work. All of the other firms, when we were doing our due diligence, they were, in essence, the broker. You know, they would work with the homeowner, they would work with the different financing party, and then they would use th a third-party or general contractor and subs. Fascinating. Uh, we actually like that they are the contractor of record. So if I wanted to do a Curbio update to my kitchen, I would take a picture, I would scan it in, uh, and then interact with the software for the software to show me options for me to select one, and then it'll get bid up, I'll get a price bid, and then if I sign, the contract will show up to start working. That's basically the process. Yeah, the only caveat I would give is, I'm sure you're a great photographer, Gotti, but usually they, uh, they hire a professional 3D scanning company to do the actual photography. Gotcha. Um, I'm a little offended, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, they, all, uh, they also nuance is they don't do any remodel. It is not just, they do pre-sale remodeling. And the key distinction there is they are looking to do the remodel that minimizes rework. And the key, the best example I've heard is if you paint uh, an office or a room blue, when you do it pre-sale, you sell it with whatever blue you paint. Uh, when you paint a homeowner's room blue, there's a 90% chance you paint it the wrong color blue. And they make you repaint the blue. Uh, so they, Curbio is currently focused on that pre-sale market where there's a limited number of options and those options are the options that are selling best in that market. And they, have, they minimize the rework, which also increases margin. I understand, good. All right, let's move on. So um, can you tell us about some investments you made that you kind of in retrospect say, you know, maybe, maybe that was not such a great idea. Yep, um, so the, the benefit we have is that we've, we pilot every one of these companies prior to putting any money at risk. Yep. So, uh in the 27 deals we've done since 2011 uh there's only been two where we haven't returned at least all of the principal and to date we've had zero zeros so of those two yeah <laughs> uh, and then that's a key piece we if one of our companies does fail and altogether goes to zero uh, it has the potential to be a lot more harmful to our investors than just losing money. Right. So what we have found was our biggest challenges and specifically was illustrated in those two uh, companies where we had trouble were the actual dynamic of the people involved in the company and not necessarily the senior team or the employees but the dynamic between the board and the senior team, the investors, the board and the senior team, there are a lot of stakeholders in a startup company. Mm -hmm. And one of the most challenging pieces, which is often overlooked, is there are, are com there's complexities around the relationships of the people who've invested and the people who are day-to-day -day making the company work. And navigating that as a company grows, every company has challenges, every company has troubles, and that's when you really see the true personality of a lot of times the board, the investors. That has been one of the hardest pieces. For us, what we have found is the more control, the more, uh, the larger stake we have, the more dry powder we have to put into each of our companies, the more leverage we have and thus the stronger ability we have to dr drive success. Um, where we got into trouble with our first fund was when there was a challenging dynamic between the board and the senior team, and we didn't have the dry powder to step in and drive an outcome. And that's one of the biggest things we've learned to date is really by 
navigating the human dynamics, that's a lot of the challenge. Is that, Casey, about um, uh, governance control, or is that more about leadership, uh, management, communications? What, how, how do you draw the yeah. distinction between those two? Do you need the stick, or just do you need the, uh, the carrot? Uh, you need everything. <laughs> so you won't I mean, invest in the company unless you have control or the ability to influence the outcome. And yeah. To deploy and, leadership. And it's, it's, not a, it's not just for the sake of like needing the control, uh, but trying to navigate the uncertainty of the macroeconomic climate. There's just so many things that every company is going to run into as they mature that if you are not fully committed to a company, it's a bet. And that's not how we do business. You know, it's not, okay, here's a check. Good luck, you know, figure it out and send us more money when you do really well. That's not how we operate. So by being incredibly involved, by being additive, we need to have our full attention, our full focus and work with the team to drive the outcome together. Yep. I mean, the senior teams of our portfolio companies are just remarkable operators. And it's on them to make these succeed. We act as the catalyst. But in order for them to succeed, we need to be fully focused, fully involved. And that's where we're both fully aligned. So you've made 13 investments and, uh, and counting. And um, I'm sure there's some lessons learned. What, what drives success uh, in investing in a in in technology companies in real estate? Um, I'm gonna turn this question back to you with uh, both real estate too. I mean, I, I think the answer will be similar. The key for technology companies is this, the team, the people. And what we found is you can have the most cutting edge technology, the sleekest UI UX, where everyone you know is talking about it, all the hype in the world, but if they don't execute and get people to start buying their product, it's not going anywhere. Right. So what we look for and one of the key pieces is a team that can execute. The, you know, we look at over a thousand deals a year and one of, the, by far the most common outcome when we look at a deal is we're gonna track the senior team to watch them execute. Mm -hmm. And, when we get most excited is when we connect with a company, they tell us they're going to do X, Y, and Z, and they do it. It's pretty rare. Um, and that's the key. I mean, when they execute, that's really exciting. And then we can say, here's this massive network of customers, of opportunities. We're going to add to your execution, and it'll be a great partnership. So, uh, I would, I would ask you, Gotti, when you, when you guys work with the firm or when you're evaluating real estate opportunities, you know, what, what are the key pieces that you look for? Well, I, uh, I think you touched on all of them. Uh, I'm not sure whether how I'm going to say it will reflect the priority list if there is one, but it's certainly these are the topics that I would uh, say in, in a 40-year career I've learned seem to be indicators of success. First and foremost, it needs to be a good idea that has a ready marketplace for that idea. In itself, it's obviously not enough. Uh, then you need to have uh, the right people with the right culture. And that's both inside and outside uh, people and culture, meaning that they have the right ideas and they can execute them. They work well together as a team uh, and they're committed and dedicated to one another, to the business enterprise and to serving the market. Uh, and then lastly, it's uh, capital, the right capital. Uh, right. And it's amazing to me how many great ideas with good people, even facing a terrific marketplace, uh, end up short on capital and not getting there, which is one of the reasons I think that, uh, uh, I, at least I hope, Cambridge Creek can be a differentiated outcome uh, because you have, I believe, plenty of capital to support those companies. Uh, you'll select projects and investments that face a very good deep market potential with people that have the right culture and the right organization structure to uh, address that market and provide them the capital to succeed. So I hope, I hope I'm, I've satisfied your question. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I mean, I, I completely agree. I think the right type of capital is key. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, 
we see a lot of opportunities that are really exciting opportunities, just not for venture capital. Or, you know, we've seen deals that are, in our mind, a real estate deal. And the company is trying to raise venture capital for said real estate deal. Yeah. And it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so I agree. Right capital, it takes a lot. There's yeah. a lot of different components. It does. So let me ask you sort of an exit question before we go to q and I know there's a people in the audience that have questions for us. But I'm curious about um, uh, sort of a two-part question. I'm curious about the impact of COVID-19 on PropTech. My theory is that it's a great accelerant of the need for and the demand for uh, uh, technology solutions for real estate. Maybe starting with the touchless technologies you were describing at the very beginning, but perhaps beyond that. And that leads me to the, to the bigger question, which is beyond COVID-19. Over the next 10 years, five years, if you can see that far, what's going to be different in prop tech from the last five to 10 years? I suspect the last five to 10 years were more the infancy stage of that space. Yeah. And I think we're reaching a more mature stage. So what's going to be different in the mature stage than it was in the, in the infancy stage? Yeah, so the, I'll, I'll start a little bit earlier even than five years ago, but the, the key piece is in 2011, if you looked at who was in control, both owning and operating real estate, it was a group of people who were very hesitant to do anything differently. Right. Um, over the past 10 years, that's changed. Both the leaders at the real estate operating and, and companies that are owning these assets and the willingness to implement technology. So I'd say we've gone from a complete lack of uh, interest. It's like, you know, in 2010, we've done real estate the same way for the past hundred years and it, we've made money. Why uh, change? It ain't broke, right. Yeah, it ain't broke. Yeah, we heard that a lot in 2011. Right. Um, to today where there's just an appetite. People are hungry for information, you know, like what is technology, how is it making it better? And the key there is there's a hunger for knowledge and a hesitancy to change. And that is what we saw all the way through 2019. The first question is how complex is the integration? Is it going to go well? That was one of the biggest challenges. And what we expect going forward in COVID-19 is an amazing example to answer your first question. We think people are going to go from, I'm interested, I wanna learn about it. Do I really wanna to change to, we need to have a technology first strategy. And if we don't have a technology first strategy, not only is our face-to-face -face traditional business going to be less efficient, but we're gonna be missing out on this massive greater opportunity that exists fully digital. So the biggest change that we see uh, philosophically is this call, uh, almost call to action and taking action. Yeah. And we saw COVID-19 as a great example. So like Notarize is a perfect case study where their product was in market, it was growing. And when the barrier to integration was removed because companies had to do things digitally, their demand spiked massively. Right. And what we expect is that's now the norm. People, I mean, Zoom is a, another great example where you know, you'd probably do a Zoom call a week or maybe a couple a week. And now most people are saying, like counting how many per day right. Zoom meetings they're having. So the key that we see over the next five years philosophically is people are going to be doing a technology first strategy, taking action more now than ever. It's incredibly beneficial to our industry, to real estate tech and the growth of enterprise value of real estate tech. And then, you know, taking that step, the next step, what is it going to look like in the next five years? The, the most exciting piece for us is it'll probably, like in hindsight, take about 15 years to try to do and to accomplish what we thought we could have done back in 2011. And that is 
provide seamless experiences for the resident and multifamily, for the tenants and office, for the teams in an industrial facility, for the guests at a hotel, where you walk into a building and then you just walk into your apartment and you have complete security with such a simple user interface. When you wanna renew your lease, you go on your phone, you read the lease, you make sure it's fine. If you wanna negotiate, you negotiate right there on your phone, you sign on your phone and you move on. You know, there, it isn't a three, four, five week process where it's hard to get a hold of the landlord and you're not exactly sure what the new terms are. So it'll be, again, at the high level, a massive increase in transparency. So both the, on the consumer, not, you know, like the resident, the tenant, uh, the guest side, massive increase in transparency, yeah. increase in speed. So like the friction costs will be significantly lower. And then one of the things that we're most excited about is increasing a massive increase on, of efficiency on the owner operator side. And we, we are going to see that across all of the pieces. So that's one that has a massive amount of potential value is real estate is a traditionally illiquid asset. And there's a number of exciting tools that have the opportunity to create with transparency and efficiency of transactions to add liquidity. And that is an exciting piece where with more liquidity in the real estate space, it then opens up real estate to a much larger group of investors. Um, the first generation companies like Fundrise are a great example of that, where you know, crowdfunding from real estate, uh, from retail investors into real estate more directly than say a traditional publicly traded REIT is a, is a good example of adding liquidity and reducing the fees and reducing uh, the friction to having ownership of real estate. So we view this, like to your point, 2.0, is really realizing the way technology should be helping real estate and not really that 1.0, which was just point solutions to specific problems. Seems to me that your, um, the industry's uh, marketing challenge is shifting from having to convince people this is a good idea to actually having a good idea that meets the demand of people who are much more sophisticated about what they need. Yeah. Uh, and who may be worried about uh, not making the wrong bet, uh, but not so much needing to be convinced that they need to make a bet. Yeah. And I thought your, your earlier point, which I think is a big takeaway for me, and that is that um, now that we are not in the infancy stage anymore and there are lots of solutions out there, there is a need to A, integrate solutions to create a seamless experience for the user, and B, what I believe to be a major gap that we haven't explored yet how to close is the information gap between the, the user that doesn't um, know what is the right solution for their uh, need and the providers who have the solution but have no communication. It's such a fragmented industry on both ends of this that right. I think it's very challenging. So we'll, we'll talk about that in the future, I'm sure. Yeah, right, right now that's, that's the role we play. We try right. to provide that value. Right. Um, but yeah, I agree. We're one of the few people who can provide that bridge. Terrific. Josh, uh, why don't I turn it over to you or at least uh, invite you in for the conversation. Thanks. Well, you guys were actually doing an incredible job and, and Casey and Gotti both so informative. Thank you. I mean, you guys kind of hit on most of the big questions I think that were, that were getting asked in particular towards the end there around sort of impacts on COVID and, and sort of maybe the trends that have been accelerating. But I think one of the other ones related to kind of the COVID impacts and prop tech is is you know the kind of comparison between valuations that you're seeing versus maybe what we're hoping to see in real estate i think there's a lot of discussion around distress and people looking for real estate deals that hasn't sort of materialized yet however maybe there has been some of that in the prop tech space have you seen valuations come down i mean you certainly read a lot about the big headline ones right yeah um so i i list Gotti, i listened to your presentation and your conversation with doug weil um I, i'd say the the sentiments he shared and you guys shared and that one are similar in that transaction volumes are just down generally. The data supports that. Um, anecdotally, we've seen that. We've really seen two buckets uh, of investment. And that's number one, there are some pretty significant headlines that will likely be coming out soon where large companies 
uh, and the large for startups uh, have taken significant down rounds from insiders. And that's one of the most common things we've seen to date. With the down rounds, in a lot of circumstances, there's been an opportunity for outside investors to participate. However, uh, it's still, you know, TBD as to whether or not it's worth the, the, the valuation of even the down round. Uh, so what we've seen the most common is there's been a lot of internal rounds being done. We've seen the hardest hit industries similar to the real estate space, so hospitality. Um, you know, there's companies like Stay Alfred that have already folded. Uh, we think in that lease sublease model, there's very clear uh, challenges. You know, it's not going to be a quick recovery for the lease sublease co-working uh, type products. And uh, the second bucket we've seen are the companies that continue to do really well. And those are companies like Notarize. Uh, they have a ton of demand and on the investment side, where we are still watching very closely, and this is similar to uh, the real estate space, in March, all the companies pulled all of the levers, so to speak, they could to cut burns, so they reduced headcount, they cut corporate spending, they, a lot of them took PPP money, and with all of the measures they took, they extended runways, however, we expect over the next six to 12 months, there won't be any more options. And we're gonna see some really compelling opportunities. So very similar to what we've been hearing in the real estate space from our investors, we expect over the next six to 12 months there to be some really compelling opportunities where there's great companies, great underlying solutions that are just hit a challenging financing time. And, uh, you know, it'll be really staying involved to see and, and pick out the ones that are going to be the real winners. Interesting. So you, you will be doing some distressed investing in prop tech companies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've, we've already started to uh, see the first couple companies trickle in and we think there's going to be a massive amount in the, in the fall that'll go for a while. Yeah. And in spite of all this, right. you've had no trouble raising your fund three which was a substantial fund. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, not quite public yet, but yeah, uh, okay. things are going well. <laughs> well, and actually maybe that's a good, and that might be a good transition since we only have two minutes left to kind of a final question since Casey's kind of sat on both sides here. Uh, what's the difference or what's it like trying to raise capital for real estate investing versus going out and trying to raise capital for VC investing? I mean, rare, I think, for folks to sit on both sides of that or see both of that. Yeah, um, the, the difference, the biggest difference that we would say is we've actually been, for the venture capital, we're pitching real estate investors. Um, so it's really, at least in my experience, it's a diff we're pitching different people. Um, and the, the key is almost like a, a distinction of what the asset classes look like. So with real estate, you know, everyone says yield. Uh, yield is huge. Um, with venture capital, I don't think I've ever heard the term yield. Um, it's all about capital appreciation and exit multiples. So, you know, on, they're, they're extremely complementary in that with real estate, you're looking at yield, cash on cash returns, leverage returns. It's all about this cash flow. And then with venture capital, it's all about capital appreciation. So the two together actually create, in my mind, this amazing portfolio of cash flow and capital appreciation. Uh, one has a massive amount of capital appreciation, potential upside with more risk. One is likely less risk with cash flow, and the two together make for an amazing uh, diversified portfolio. So they're, like, they're systematically different, uh, but very complementary to each other. I think we're going to call it a day at that. Casey, it's been great talking to you. And uh, clearly, you've built a fantastic business and you're in a space that's exciting and dynamic and got get great promise for the future. You seem to have clear vision for what needs to happen, can happen, will happen. And I know you will execute very well on it. Uh, in full disclosure for our audience, we have invested in Canberra Creek. <laughs> so, uh, or at least we've committed to invest. 
and uh, we have great personal confidence that's going to work well. But I've been friends with you and observing you for the last five or six years, and uh, I am very optimistic, very respectful, and very uh, appreciative of uh, your sharing your thoughts with us today and uh, everything that you do for real estate and uh, for us. So, Casey, thank you for your time. Audience, we invite you to listen to this uh, on YouTube if you want to go back and listen to it. We'll and uh, we'll invite you back in a few months or maybe in a year or so to do a, a, a recap and see what happened since. So thank you, Casey. Have a great uh, weekend and uh, enjoy. Uh, be, be, be well and be healthy. Thank you, Gotti. Thanks for having me. You bet. So long, everybody.